When Chuck's away, that's a real red flag. This episode is sponsored by Elixir Sips. Elixir Sips is a screencast series that will take you from Elixir newbie to experienced practitioner. If you're interested in learning Elixir but don't know where to start, then Elixir Sips is perfect for you. In two short screencasts each week, between 5 and 15 minutes, Elixir Sips currently consists of over 16 hours of densely packed videos in more than 100 episodes, and there are more every week. Elixir Sips is brought to you by Josh Adams, expert Rubyist and CTO of a software development consultancy, Isotope 11. Elixir Sips. Learn Elixir with a pro. Find out more at elixirsips.com. This episode is sponsored by Les Accounting. Let's face it, there are a lot of things about being an entrepreneur that we all hate. One of the things that I really hate is bookkeeping. Less Accounting has just started a new service where you can get your bookkeeping done for a really low cost each month. If you're interested, go to freelancershow.com slash bookkeeping to go check it out. I signed up and they had me all caught up within a couple of days. It was awesome. And I can't recommend them highly enough. Their people are professional and good at what they do. So go check it out once again at freelancershow.com slash bookkeeping. This episode is sponsored by Dev Mountain. Dev Mountain is a coding school with the best world-class learning experience you can find. Dev Mountain is a 12-week full-time development course. With only 25 spots available, each cohort fills quickly. As a student, you will be assigned an individual mentor to help answer questions when you get stuck and make sure you are getting the most out of the class. Tuition includes 24-hour access to campus and free housing for our out-of-state applicants. In only 12 weeks, you'll have your own app in the App Store. Learn to code. It's time. Go to devmountain.com slash freelancers. Listeners of The Freelancer Show will get a special $250 off when they use the coupon code freelancers at checkout. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode number 156 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Eric Davis. Hello. And Jonathan Stark. Hello. And I'm Ruben Lerner. And this week, we are talking about red flags, the kinds that we wave in front of bulls. Or... The kind, or, or or the kinds that you might metaphorically see coming down the pike uh, as certain clients approach you, and should be warning you away from ever engaging with them. Uh, whether that happens or not, of course, is a different story altogether. So, guys, what red flags go up when you talk to a potential client? What can they say or do that will convince you not to talk to them anymore? The first one that comes to mind is, we just fired our last dev. Can you help us? <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's always two sides to every story. And when I hear about a previous consultant getting fired, it makes me very nervous. Right. Or never mind sued. I had one one people. We, we're suing our last developer, so we need somebody right away. They it's really like, told yeah. you that? They said we sued yeah. our last developer? Yeah. <laughs> wow. So far away from that one. Yeah, that's one I've seen a few times. I think um, I know a lot of other people, other um, developer, freelance type people that see that a lot, and they'll pick up a project where you know the last developers on the last whatever we'll say you know last quarter of the project kind of quality went down. They were just doing the stuff, and then ended up the client fired them, hired you know these people I know to pick up the ball, and basically it was like a trouble project as soon as they got started. Um, I, most of the time it, it works out. I mean, most of the time it's like code problems. And once, you know, some, a good consultant's in there and actually helping and communicating all that stuff turns around. But, you know, the client's already starting off pissed off and on a bad foot with it. Yeah, no doubt. It's not totally, it, it might be the developer's fault. That's definitely true. But it's not the kind of situation that I prefer to get into given the option. 
Right. Well, I mean, I just I just started with a new client in the last few weeks where they made it very clear that they thought the previous consultant, the previous developer, did a fantastic job on the software, but they said, but he was really difficult to work with, and when we called him, he just, like, never answered. We went weeks trying to reach him, and we couldn't reach him. So, A, they were trying to make sure that I would actually be communicative, and actually, this past week, we were launching another site, so I was not so communicative, so that was not a great way to start the project. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but secondly, we actually looked through his code, and maybe to the layperson, it seemed fantastic, but to us, we were like, yeah, I mean, it's it's good, but it's not that good. But of course, they don't, they don't know, right? Like, they don't know good code or bad code. They just know, did it fill their needs? And right. from their perspective, it sort of kind of did, but not enough, and that's why we're now coming in to add to it. But if it had been a more, I think, a, a more strenuous, boy, this previous development was terrible, then I might have thought a little more about it. Yeah, and those are actually projects I like taking on because I'm really good at communication, really good at, you know, getting feedback with the client and working with what they want or what they need. And so if I can step in, and even if the code is good or kind of on the bad side, if I can step in and basically take what they have and actually show how this will work or, you know, put the final touches on it to get it so it actually fulfills a need, it works really good. I, I enjoy those types of projects you know, and enjoy showing a client like, you know, this is what a good relationship can be and what, what you can get out of it. Right. Right, right. I mean, I, I, I often tell clients that I really enjoy having, and it's true, right? It has, as my PhD advisor likes to say, it has the advantage of being true. But I really like having long-term clients. I like knowing them and, and getting to know their business and, and trying to help it and seeing it grow. And so also, here's, here's another red flag. We just need someone for like a week or we just need someone for a month or so. And from my perspective, those projects aren't as interesting. And often they're trying to just be super cheap about it too. Right. Sometimes That's how I would short. Yeah, that's a classic red flag, too. I mean, it's almost too obvious to say. But if somebody contacts you initially and they're already saying they don't have any money, then, <laughs> you know, we don't have a big budget for this. But, or the the sort of flip side of that, which is, it should be easy. Like, we need you to do this thing. It should be really easy. What's your hourly rate? Basically, <laughs> That's the email. And uh, that sends me running. Well, I'll tell you, this new client, actually, like, they said, we don't have that much money. And so I said, well, okay, let, let's turn this around a little bit. And I talked to them a little bit about what they want to do. And so like, we, we came to some, I think, reasonable, not amazing, but reasonable arrangement on such things. But I'm also hoping slash expecting that we're going to push their business ahead so much that in somewhere between two to four months, I'm going to go back to them and say, okay, now you're really humming. You never had anything like this before. We've got a great relationship. Now you got to pay more because you're actually making more. Uh, now, there's a bit of a gamble on my side, and I recognize that. But it seems like an interesting project. It seems like it has potential, at least. Yeah, budget's a tricky one. I'm okay working with clients that have a smaller budget where they might only be able to afford like a week of my time, which is like the minimum amount I sell. Um, but it has to be where I can, you know, for sure get in, get up and running, deliver value, and then leave where it's like there's no like big unfinished part. Uh, that's kind of the hard thing. I have some clients where they're like, yeah, we just need you for a few hours or need to work with you for a month. And I'm like, well, when you factor in contract negotiation, getting started, and then doing the work, you might be out of actual like calendar time for that. Like, you know, like if you have a launch coming up or something. Uh, so that's something I kind of watch for is if they have the expectation of you can just go to like a temp agency and hire a temp employee and in four hours later, they're sitting down, you know, typing on the computer. Uh, it doesn't quite work like that for what I do. Right. That reminds me of another one, which is when someone comes to you and you in initial conversations you already recognize that the timeline is completely unrealistic. And that usually happens to me when I see like 
there's sort of like a, a mandate from somebody farther up the organization, and then I get contacted by someone who has no control over the timeline, and they're like, look, we just need an app in three weeks. Uh, what can you do? <laughs> and I'm like, it's impossible, and if anybody tells you it's possible, they're just taking your money. But, you know, of course, we've had enough conversation at this point for me to know that the app is not the kind of thing that can be done in three weeks. It's like a six-month project that, you know, they waited too long to start, and it's a red flag. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and I mean, some some companies might be able to do that. Like, you know, they might be able to do a spike and have something out there. You know, it could be they have the staff or the resources, or maybe the quality is just really low. But in any case, I think we need to realize like these are our red flags. Like someone else's red flags might be different. You know, if you go from like you know turning around and building a, an app in three weeks, like if that's your business model, having a short timeline is probably not a red flag. That's probably actually like a requirement to be a client. Yeah, and a red flag doesn't mean I'm not going to take someone on. It's just like a, it's a red flag. It's like, hmm, I need to be careful about this and make sure that it gets discussed. So it's not like, you know, somebody has one red flag and I'm like, oh, I'm definitely not working with this person. There's certain ones that I don't have patience for, but if somebody has like an unrealistic timeline, for example, but they're flexible on scope or quality, then okay, like I can have that conversation. Right. But I'm not going to, obviously, anyone be crazy to jump into a project that was doomed from the start. That doesn't make any sense. Right. I often have, when, when I talk to people about training, um, one of the sort of interesting red flags that often comes up is people say, oh, we know that your regular course is four days, but our people are all very smart. <laughs> <laughs> like, I've, I think I've mentioned this in the past. I feel like it's the lo- Lake Wobegon effect. Of developers, like you know, Lake Wobegon is like you know, this public radio show where they would say, "Here in Lake Wobegon, all the children are above average." Right? It's 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 amazing. <laughs> it's amazing that like in every company I talk to, the developers are above average smart. Truly really amazing. In any event, I have to explain to them that it has nothing to do with how smart their people are. It has to do with we've just got to grind through exercises, explanations, and so forth, and that takes time. And yes, we can cut things down, but it'll be to their detriment. And usually. That gets through to them. Not always, but usually. Ruben, can't you just talk twice as fast? <laughs> so I say that sometimes. I'll say, I'm like, well, you know, I already talk kind of fast. I can just talk faster if you want. <laughs> and then someone realizes, yeah, but I guess often someone will make the comment, but we can't listen twice as fast. And I say, aha, right. <laughs> now, now you've got it. <laughs> it's like putting the nine ladies on the pregnancy thing. Have a baby in one month. Another thing that is a pretty subtle one and probably is very specific to me, or maybe another way to put it is that it's not necessarily, it doesn't mean that the client is necessarily bad, but it could indicate a bad fit with my personality and communication style, is that typically the way it works with me is I'll get a lead via email and I'll respond to them and say, hey, grab a slot in my calendar for next week. In the meantime, if you wouldn't mind answering these you know, five or six simple questions, I can get my home, you know, I can do some homework before we talk and we can really maximize the time on the phone. And if they refuse to do that, or if they either don't read the whole email or, or they respond to a question I didn't ask, like they read the question wrong, or basically if they don't communicate well over email, it's probably going to be a rocky relationship because I do so much communication over email. I'm not into lots of scheduled phone calls. So if they're the type of customer that really would rather just, let's just jump on the phone and we can talk through this, it's probably going to be a painful relationship. Well, I'm actually curious, like, so you, you have these questions that you say, that you send to people. And, uh, I mean, Curtis, when he was on the podcast, he used to talk about this also, the sort of pre-screening questions. 
Yeah. And I mean, I can understand, I can totally understand that if people don't fill it out, it could be a bit of a red flag at the same time. Like, don't you think it's sort of putting off people that you're losing potential clients in so doing? Uh, yeah. I mean, usually what happens is that I get like a monster brain dump back. And that to me indicates that, first of all, they're comfortable with email as a communication medium. Right. Uh, or at least typing as a communication medium, which is important because I like to run most of my projects all run through Basecamp or there's like a chat room as well. So if people are insisting always on having synchronous phone communications. It really screws up my schedule and uh, it, it makes things much more complicated for me. So I prefer to work with people who are comfortable with an asynchronous text-based kind of style. Um, and the questions usually are really fun questions to answer for any business or business owner. It's, you know, like, what's your origin story? How'd you get started? What are your favorite kind of clients? You know, it depends on the project, but the questions are always different. But they're usually pretty conversational, and they're kind of things I'd ask you at a cocktail party. It's not, like, really annoying stuff, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So if they don't want to answer them, that's fine. But if they don't read them and they just type what... Like, I have a guy I'm coaching where he'll send a simple question to, to somebody he's working with and she'll just respond with this, something that's totally orthogonal to what he was asking. Like she didn't understand the question or she skimmed it so fast. And you know how things can just go horribly wrong in email when you're like, now you're like, now you have to jump on the phone because you're like, wait, did you not understand my question or did you read it wrong or do I not understand the answer? And there's like, you just immediately just goes down this rabbit hole of confusion. So then you have to get on a phone and talk to them. And like, that's fine. That's probably a lot of people prefer to work that way, but I'm not one of them. So if somebody's not good on email or in Basecamp or something like that, it's, it increases my cost, if you will. So it, it makes it less attractive to me. Right. So let's say you've started a project, right? So they, they seem to have passed the first hurdles and mm -hmm. they see, you know, they answer the questions and they seem decent to deal with and they're not going to be total psychos, or at least it seems that way. What can happen during a project that will convince you otherwise or that will start to you know, make the hair on the back of your neck stand up? Oh, that's easy. When, when all of a sudden a re the real buyer comes out of the woodwork and is psycho. Like basically you could be hopefully near the beginning of the project, but you can be in a project and then all of a sudden the real boss shows up and it becomes clear immediately that the project was scoped wrong. And it's like, okay, time to pump the brakes and uh, like, let's have a conversation right now because this is not what I bid, you know, that kind of thing. So that has, this is very rare though. I, I can only think of a couple of occasions that's happened. Right. I mean, I had a project, I guess sort of the closest equivalent to that that I've ever had was I did this project with SAP a number of years ago and like only in a big company can this happen. I mean, I'm sure you've seen this before. They had some like 40 people working full time on this project. After eight months, the VP in charge of it said, well, tell you what, we've actually now got to get approval for this thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking, what? <laughs> like, how, how is that possible? You have 40 people working full time and no one thought to check if this was okay. And then they did not get approval. <laughs> so that was the end of the project. But mm -hmm. um, I guess now it, it didn't bother me. I worked on it for eight months or so. I had a great time, met a lot of great people. But, you know, it might have been interesting and good to find out at some point. Wh what's the approval? What's the What's the timeline on this? Right. Yeah, I mean, one thing I've had happen was I would work with the lead. We go through contract, basically finish up the contract. Like it's basically about needs to be signed and then deposit payment. And then they'd leave or get fired and their replacement would come in and basically kick it back to square one. And mm -hmm. I, 
the one time I'm thinking of when that happened, they really tried to distance themselves from everything the original person did. And so even if working with me was a great thing for the company, because I worked with the prior person, they didn't want to do it. And like they pushed back so hard and completely changed scope and all that. And then there's another one I can, another client I can think of where I actually got in, was working on the project and basically the, the PM changed completely. The new one came in, that one left. Um, and by the time I was done, the entire dev team, everyone I worked with at the beginning was gone and replaced with other people. Uh, so that was hard. Like I was, I was like the one who told, was having to tell people like classically, this is, this is why we made this decision five, six months ago. You know, mm. we can change it now, but this is why. Uh, so that was kind of a red flag. And that's actually what prompted me to kind of exit that project was just, there was a lot of turnover because of the, the culture in the organization. Right. Yeah. That's brutal. I've had two situations that are sort of like that. One was in both cases, they had been paid up front. And in one case, the real buyer showed up on the scene and was, it was immediately obvious that it was going to be a disaster. Like it was not the kind of person that I could deal with. So I just sent them their money back and said, thanks anyway. And then another situation was same, very similar to what Eric just said, where like new CEO and just completely cleaned house. Like I had been working with closely with like three or four people and occasionally with up to 40 or 50 people in the company and the new CEO came in and like everybody just disappeared. I don't know if they got fired, but the whole project just got killed and nobody ever contacted me again. They just kept sending checks. So it was like, okay, <laughs> like no one would get back to me. It was, it was super weird. That was the weirdest. It was like, it was one of these big company things where someone authorized a retainer for the next X months. And so the checks yeah. keep getting cut, but right. the person who would be watching over that budget was fired or something. Yeah. Like if I could have, I kept on emailing my contacts and stuff and being like, you guys, you know, you're still paying me. <laughs> you might as well get on the phone. I mean, so n- nobody ever did just, they just disappeared. Wow. So it was, I guess that, that worked out well in a sense. I mean, <laughs> I didn't lose any money or anything, but, uh, and it didn't get awkward, but it was super weird. But to the larger point, when there's like a big personnel change, it's everything is sort of thrown into limbo or can be. Right. Cause I, I mean, regardless of how close of a relationship you might have with a company, at the end of the day, you're still a consultant, you're still an outsider. And so you need some stability in your client to be able to, talk to them, communicate, offer them advice, hope that the advice is being taken. And if there's just complete chaos going on there, that's not going to help anyone. Certainly not you. Right? Yeah, and like everybody I was working with, it wasn't their money that was getting sent to me, and they were pretty angry at the management anyway, so they probably thought it was funny. You know, <laughs> who knows? You know, I was definitely the last of their worries, though. Well, and that's kind of like what a lot of people say is, when you're working with businesses and sales and all that stuff, you're not really selling to the business like Apple or Nike or IBM. You're selling to people at the company and so in that case like you know you sold to whatever we'll say the vp of engineering and when he left all of a sudden like you sold to him the company's still paying for it but he's gone and so it's this really weird like dynamic and you don't know like okay should i keep working for the company should i start should i cancel their contract what but that's something to keep in mind it's like it's people it's a relationship you have with the people not with the actual organization or the company one red flag that I find that comes up a lot, um, actually comes up during the sales process most of the time, but also can come up during a project is when, you know, the person you're working with, you know, your direct client, they actually start going dark on you. Like they stop returning phone calls, stop returning emails, and it's like just a pain to get a hold of them. The biggest fear I have is because I've had these past experiences with personnel changes is that I'm worried like, 
oh, they got fired and no one's going to tell me about it. <laughs> right. But that's something I, I watch for. And I mean, there's some circumstances like, you know, someone's really busy or I've had, I had a client in Switzerland, which time zone is just really far away from, you know, Oregon. So like I knew of him, I had to kind of give him a lot more, a lot more slack, a lot more buffer because I knew it would take him a while to get back to me. But, you know, if people just don't reply to emails or don't do that stuff, I, I start slowing down and then I'll put the brakes on and say like, hey, you know, this project, I'm putting this on hold because you're not answering questions, even if I'm not blocked on stuff like, you know, this needs to have communication. We need to have a relationship here. And if you can't do that, then it's not a good fit for us because of the style that I work in. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, similar to going dark, I mean, there was a client where I went in and gave them a bunch of help on PostgreSQL stuff. And we had a really, really great relationship. And in one of our meetings, then the guy I was meeting with said, oh, let me introduce you to sort of our, our new person on the team. I thought, oh, that's very nice. And then, of course, the next week I discover through a LinkedIn update that the guy I'd been working with has left the company. And the reason he was introducing me to this person was he was hoping there would be some continuity. And, and he was very nice about it. I guess he couldn't say anything at the time. Maybe he hadn't told them, whatever it was. So, like, from a client perspective, I lost the client because there was no way, basically, that they were going to continue with this guy's favorite consultant. They actually did call me in once, and we spoke for like an hour, and that that was that. So it was, it was a good relationship while it lasted, but it's useful to keep track of who is sticking around and who is not, and how happy they are with the company. Because so, someone's got to be there to be your advocate. At least my experience has been someone's to be your advocate to keep you coming back. Yeah, I mean, I'm big on the conceptual agreement thing, and that is a very personal thing between you and usually a specific individual who then becomes your advocate internally, you know, and they're the ones that you agreed with, like, what is the value of this project to the company? How are we going to measure it? And that stuff's all written down too. But for me, like a proposal is very much like um, an after the fact type of artifact that is just repeats in writing what we've agreed to in like speaking. And it's not necessarily persuasive on its own. So when somebody new comes in and they sort of go over the proposal or whatever, they look and see what the deliverables might be or what the schedule is. It's like, it's really out of context and it could be really hard to kind of salvage that unless they were totally on board or they had been involved in the conversations from the first place. I can't see that's happened very often to me though, because my projects, I always do short-term projects. Like three months for me would be a long one now. They're usually nowhere near that long. And oh. I get paid up front, so a lot of the times I don't care if somebody goes dark or the project gets killed. Right. I somehow thought that you had a, a like you were doing a lot of retainer work like over many months. Yeah, so occasionally I will do software projects these days. It's pretty rare, but if I do, I bill for them in advance. But the thing is I try and keep them really small. I think Eric does bigger size projects. I like to break mine down into the smallest possible chunks and move like one step at a time. And that, that doesn't always work for everybody, but I try to work with people who that is good for. For a retainer type of thing, that's kind of like a subscription feeling, like a, an ongoing retainer that's like just recurs monthly. That's not paid up front, right? But it, it's almost always names a specific person in the organization who's allowed to contact me. And if that person left, it would definitely be the end of the retainer. Like, because I'm sort of like a trusted advisor to that particular person, not necessarily to the entire organization, certainly not to the entire organization. So there was something about that person that clicked with me and what I do, and we just sort of clicked together. And, and there's, it's kind of non-transferable, if you know what I mean. You'd really have to start over. 
So yeah, I, mean, would, I could see them like renewing it, but if they renewed it, it'd be like, you know, a whole new relationship just with a company you've worked before. Yeah. I mean, it'd be, it, there's certain points where it's like that sometimes I'll work out a deal with a company that I really trust where I will say, I will give you like a six month price, but you can still pay me monthly, but they get like a discounted monthly rate. Like if you're just paying me month to month at will, the price is higher and because I, I want to incentivize people to have more long-term engagements with me like six months or a year. So I'll give them a break on the, you know, I'll give them a month or two months free if they pay for a whole year. But I mean, sometimes I don't want that check all up front. Sometimes I want it spread out. So I'll say, ah, you guys can pay me monthly. It's better for me anyway. And uh, if the person then got fired at the six month point, I would be in a pickle to use a term that my grandmother used um, <laughs> because Almost certainly they would not want to pay for the remaining months, even though that was the deal. And to be honest, I would probably, I would fight for myself a little bit and be like, if you're going to cancel now in the middle, then really the only fair thing to do would be to pay me the balance of the discount I gave you for the longer purchase, but they'd probably never do it. And I wouldn't do anything about it. So yeah, it comes not worth your time at that point. And that's, that's actually happened to me. I did a, uh, I did a, a project for a large retailer and I was advising their internal web team about a responsive redesign of an existing loyalty site and the project just got out of hand it just like more and more people just kept getting sucked into the project and now all of a sudden the iOS team was in the meetings and it was like what's going on here and then finally uh, they had killed the project and they they were supposed to the deal was they were going to give me 50% up front and 50% in 30 days regardless of where the project status was because uh, that was the negotiation that we, that's where we landed in the negotiations. And they never, never sent me the second payment, even though they were on the hook for it. But the project got killed too. So I was like, yeah, like, what am I going to do? <laughs> Quite the trifecta, boy. Yeah, it was a, that was the most, I mean, big companies, you just don't know, like anything can happen. Like as stable as a big company is, like anything can happen on any day. Hiring freeze, billing freeze. Yeah, I know we were planning on doing that, but like word came down from on high that we're not. So it's so weird. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've just been, <laughs> I mean, it's not exactly on topic, but like in terms of big companies. So I've been starting to do all sorts of training directly with big companies now, I guess more and more. And so dealing with these multinationals with their billing departments and so forth. So, you know, the people in the U.S. approve it, but the people in Israel actually get the training. The people in Poland deal with the billing stuff. And mm -hmm. so... You know, the billing gets bouncing around and basically I sent them an invoice just yesterday and they said, Oh no, no, we can't do this sort of invoice. We need to get a receipt saying that you gave a, that we gave you the money already. And some back and forth, back and forth. I finally said, look, I can't do that unless you want to pay me right away. And they said, okay, how about we pay you right away? <laughs> <laughs> or we'll pay you within two weeks. Is that okay? Instead of net plus 60. All right. Sure. I never in my wildest dreams would have imagined that, you know, a big company can turn around on a dime like that. But basically it's easier for them to just pay me than to, you know, go through more billing bureaucracy. Mm. So amusing. Yeah. It was like one client I worked for, it was so hard to get into their system that he actually paid me. I don't know if it was out of his personal funds or out of like his company expense account, but he did that for like, he would do it like every week. And then I think it was like four or five months. And when I was showing like a ton of value, he went to his boss, pitched it to his boss, and then we shifted to the company actually paying for it. But it was just there was so much friction set up in their purchasing stuff that, you know, he couldn't get it done and he really wanted to work with me. Uh, I mean, that was weird things. Like he would say, like, okay, I know you invoice me, we'll say a thousand dollars. So I'm gonna pay you four hundred now, 
pay off that credit card and then I'll pay another 400 and pay it off. You know, it was just this weird, weird situation. It, it ended up nice. Like, you know, he was a great client for years and, you know, the stuff I did actually helped him. I think he got like two or three promotions out of it. So, I mean, it, everyone benefited, but it was just like this confusing, weird thing just because it, it was a large bureaucracy. Mm. Um, here's another fun, fun red flag. Uh, this is related to the, we don't have a big budget. It's the, we'll pay you in equity or, <laughs> or we'll give you a share of the profits or something like that. And get down on the ground floor. This is a billion dollar idea. Oh my God. Oh my God. Like, <laughs> now the thing is, these people really believe it. Um, oh, yeah. So I can't mock them too much. And I recognize also that's, yeah, part, that's part of, well, not for, <laughs> not for their faces. Oh, you know, that's part of the startup culture also. And that's part of like, I think it's also safe to say that very few of the companies that have become billion dollar companies were started by people who did not believe that. But the belief itself doesn't make it true. And just because you believe you're going to have a fantastic company does not mean I have to effectively become an investor in your company and then share the risks. And yeah, that's what I said to him. Like, I'll be like, you can pay my normal rate, like, you know, in cash, you know, give me a check. And if you're going to do like an equity thing or whatever like that, show me all your bank accounts, show me your, you know, audited financials, give me all the data you would give to an investor, and then I'll make the decision. And most of the time they're like, well, we, we just have an idea. And that's why I said, oh, well, sorry. <laughs> you know, my, my investment criteria requires these things done. And if you haven't done that, we can't do business. So if you want to pay me just full price cash, I'm fine with it. If you want to do a split, you're going to need to get that stuff set up. And the, the, my requirements are so high, like they would have to have funding by that point. And if they had funding, they would have cash. It'd be better for them to do cash. So it kind of, you know, cycle 22 or whatever. Yeah. Why even indulge them? I mean, no, I, I, I just say straight out, my, yeah, I'm sorry, but my business model and, and my paying of rent and other such things just like doesn't work that way. Yeah. I just um, tell people I'm not a, I'm not a gambler. I'm not gambling. <laughs> I, I, I'm sure that makes the startups you deal with uh, feel oh so good about what they're doing. No, I mean, they, I, I think they know it's a gamble and it's just not my personality style. So I'm not interested. That reminds me of one that's related is when you'll get the email from somebody and they're like, oh, we'd love to have a preliminary phone call, which I'm always cool with. That's fine. We can have a phone call. But you have to sign an NDA first because I've got this great idea. And I'm like, nah, I don't do that. I'll sign an NDA if you're paying me, like once we decide that it's a good thing. But you can't sign an NDA for every person that has an idea that I get on the phone with. That'd be uh, ridiculous. It to totally doesn't bother me because like, I, I say to people, I say it straight out, I say, Signing the NDA does not change anything. I will still keep your idea confidential, but if it makes you feel better for me to sign something like that, go for it. I mean, it's, I, I figure, what the heck? Probably their idea is terrible anyway. The odds of me going and executing on it, even smaller, you know, smaller than the idea, uh, the odds of it being a good idea. I mean, I can see your reticence in doing it because they could, in theory, come back and sue you someday. Well, it's also I mean, a big paperwork burden. Yeah, that's what I, I don't want to read it because you have to read it because there could be like a non-compete buried in there and then now you can't work with pizza places anymore or like whatever. Oh, yeah, I'm, I had one. I'm just one of the, what was that? I think I'm trying to remember deals. I think it's like a 10-year NDA non-compete. I couldn't write software that ran on websites just for talking with them. Well, I'm glad they exactly. weren't too restri restrictive then. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I never get into a legal arrangement with someone that's not paying me. It's ridiculous. Yeah, I'm okay. Like, I'll send over my master services agreement if they want an NDA because it has an NDA in there. And the master services doesn't really, like, bind anyone to doing anything yet. It's just, like, here's the terms. But it's also a 10-page legal document. And so if they are not serious, they won't even read it and will back off. 
if they are serious, then they're like, yeah, that's great. And that's like one step closer for them to be an actual client. But I actually don't get on the phone with anyone unless they've gone through like my qualifying process and I make sure they have budget, make sure they have timeline, make sure their, you know, their requirements can actually, I can fulfill and do all that stuff. Um, I actually push back really hard on just doing a, a, a phone call right away. Well, that's an interesting, that's sort of an interesting corollary to a red flag talk. So how do you, how do you set up a, a um, process to vet people? So kind of like the reverse of the red flag. Like what gates do they have to get through for you to think like, okay, no serious red flags? Um, so it, it really, the first part depends on like how they came to me. Did they come through a website? Did they come through like open source work I've done? Is it a referral? So that kind of sets them up like, you know, maybe farther along the path. Uh, but early on, I try to send them a list of questions. And unlike yours, they're pretty hard. Like they're like, what's your budget? If you don't want to tell me the exact number, give me a range. Is 5,000 high or is 5,000 low? It's 10,000. You know, I want to make sure we're playing in the same game here. Who, who are the owners? Um, are you one of the person who make decisions on it or is there someone else or other people we need to bring into the, the conversation? What are you trying to do? What does your business try to do? Like, like really detailed stuff like that. I've actually had an attorney basically back out of the process because the questions were overwhelming him and he's an attorney. <laughs> but the idea is once they go through that, like it's, they're serious. They've given me really good background information. And at that point, then like, okay, great. Let's schedule a call. So it's really like get people to answer the questions, schedule a call. And I, I might tweak it a little bit um, because I can actually back off a bit and make my response rates get a little bit higher. But this way, basically, if I get on a call with someone, there's, I don't know the exact numbers, but there's probably a 50% or greater chance that they'll end up a paying client just because I vetted them so early on. That's a good point. You're making me reconsider my questions. Some of the ones that you mentioned are there, but I don't get into the budget there, and I don't get into the owner there. Those, those are two things that would be good to add because you're right. If you don't have that person right away and they're not on the phone call, it's a bit of a waste of time or it is often a waste of time. Yeah, and I'm trying to think. There's two cases I know where those, like, where I've kind of fell back on those, and like they kind of had a half answer around it, but didn't actually give me something straight. And I like, oh, whatever, I'll get on call with them. And found out one time they didn't have the budget, and then on another time, this other person, they weren't the owner. They were having like a person, I think, two levels below the owner, actually on the call doing a demo and talking with me, basically wasting my time. And then when I went and talked to the owner, they're like, yeah, we don't really need to work with you. So I, those two specifically, I push really hard on to make sure about that. And one recent project, finding out the actual owner has actually been helpful because I actually jumped through a couple of hoops of people and got to where I need to be for it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I at this point don't even have any sort of vetting process. I sort of figure people will call me. We talk on the phone a bit. I mean, now that I'm sort of moving much, much more toward training, I think also it's becoming just more of a productized consulting thing where once I finish changing my website, then it'll be much more obvious what people are interested in. And then they can say, I'm interested in X or Y or Z or, you know, X with some changes. And then we can start talking about things. But probably, you know, mentioning budget or having them, you know, as part of uh, an initial query email, even if the form is generated partly by my website, is probably not a bad way to go. I, I'm kind of doing the, or trying to start up a productized consulting service. And the idea for that is, you know, they'll come in, check the box, like I agree to terms and conditions, which is going to be basically my contract and all that stuff, but webified with a little click-through dialogue. And then, you know, they'll start working with me. And I might even for like the higher levels actually say like, okay, you know, you agree to all this, but instead of like putting your credit card and pay, it'll be fill out this application. And then there we'll have some of these questions, other questions, 
and I'll do qualifying through that. So if someone fills it out, but I look at it and like, uh, they don't seem like a good fit, like it's going to be hard for me to give them value. I actually wouldn't let them into even the product area where it's more automated, you know, just as a way to qualify and keep people that I know, not necessarily their problem clients, but they're not a good fit for me out of my business, out of my sales process. Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't even think of this, but I just set up an application process for, for my new productized thing. So the, my coaching thing is productized uh, in four levels, and it's so personal, the interactions, that I, there's no way I could just take everybody who applied. It really, it really needs to be someone that is open to changing their business and has a, a risk profile that is going to allow them to weather the changes, you know? So like I ask, I ask about 25 questions and some of them are really personal. Like, do you own your own house? Are you married? Do you have kids and pets? And, and I explain in the thing that the reason I'm asking is because, you know, depending on some of these answers, they could be in a position where they just can't take a lot of risks or they're going to be very risk averse. But there's other stuff in there too, like what time zone are you in? And have you ever been in a coaching arrangement before? And what, what books have you read on this subject? You know, so it's a, a little bit more of a, it's a little bit more of a high bar. It's still not super high, but at least it does weed out people that would just would ask for their money back, basically. I think both, both of you guys get prepaid for your work, right? So lack of payment or delayed payment is not a, a red flag for you, I assume. I start off asking for 100% up for consulting arrangements, for speaking gigs, uh, and stuff like that. And if people balk, then I'm prepared to negotiate, like I said before, like a half up front and a half in X number of days, regardless of project status. If it's a speaking gig, I'll usually be pretty much of a stickler about getting the second payment before the gig or at the gig, uh, unless I have worked with them before and I'm friends with them or whatever. You know, there's some like extra trust level thing, but it can go six months after a, like a speaking gig. If you haven't gotten paid before, then the urgency is just gone. They're on to the next event and they, they just don't care. Um, but in general, yeah, I uh, get paid up front probably about 75% of the time. So invoicing and fighting about that stuff and chasing people for money um, is really not something I, I used to have to do it all the time, but I'm set up to avoid that now. Well, it's the same thing for me. Like I'm, it's either everything up front or I think it's about 50% uh, deposit sometimes if, you know, there's not a lot of trust there yet. Uh, but that is completely driven by I got tired of having to chase people for payments or not knowing when a payment's coming in or, oh, this client pays late every time and, you know, all the red flags from that. So like that's actually like it, they were red flags about payment and I changed the way my business worked, changed my process and basically I'm not allowing the red flag to even show up anymore. And that's, I know that's disqualified a lot of clients just because they would want work up front. And I'm like, sorry, it doesn't work like that. Mm. I have some, uh, some colleagues who insist on doing development by the hour, but they will sell blocks of hours that must be paid in advance instead of in arrears, which is an interesting angle on it. Because generally when people bill by the hour, it implies billing in arrears. And I don't like either of those things for different reasons. So if you can at least get rid of one, like you still want to bill by the hour, uh, but you sell a block in advance, then it, it would take away some of that uncertainty. Yeah, I actually toyed with that idea when I was hourly. I was thinking, oh, if I sell blocks, but then I'm like, well, why don't I just jump to weekly and did the jump and, you know, had to do up a little bit of, you know, a little bit of stress, a little bit of changes. But, I, you know, in the end, it was like only about a month or two of transition. And now I'm like completely happy I didn't do that the block of time because like you said you still have that 
you know, the hourly kind of the nitpicking of, you know, is this worth an hour of my time or not versus is this something we need to do? Is it valuable to the business? Right. I mean, I've got my first client, I think, ever who's paying me in advance. I mean, with rare exception, there's a company where I'm going to be doing training in another month. And they basically asked if they can pay me two months early because of just quarterly budgeting. I can't believe they actually asked me, but I said, oh, yes, yes, I think that would be fine. But as a general rule, I'm sorry, what? Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, you get paid for training. You don't get paid in advance for training? No, 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 no. And and I checked with a few people, and the standard in the training world is net plus 30 or net plus 60. That's not my experience. Doesn't Uh, mean you have to be the standard. You can make yourself different. Yeah. People pay for classes in advance. So here's the thing. If I were doing open enrollment, like if it were uh, I've got a room and I want to fill the room, then it's totally payment in advance. That that is 100% true. But if it's me going to a company and me doing training on-site there, my experience has been that it's all, uh, you know, typically it's net plus 30, although there are many big companies that try to get away with net plus 60. Yeah, I, I know that companies will tend to... So for development work, there's like, this gets into a different topic kind of, but I would push to get away from that if you could. I mean, I realize you're working with huge like multinational companies for training, but, and maybe you don't care, but if you are consistently chasing people for money, then, you know, there's something you can do about that. And the example I give when I get pushback from people, like I'll do, I've got a speaking gig coming up that it's like basically a morning. It's not even, it's about a half day, let's say. And I insisted that they pay me in advance, and they were like, well, we were thinking we'd pay you after you delivered. And I was like, well, you'd be surprised how many times people cancel the engagement, and there's a bunch of stuff I have to do and we have to do together leading up to it. So if you want to get on my calendar and you want to schedule all those meetings, you know, and you cancel the thing at the last minute, I'm not dealing with that. So what? let's just get the money thing out of the way and go from there. And maybe they don't trust me, and they're not going to do that. And then... We don't do the thing. Or maybe I agree to 50% up front and 50% day of. Or if I really need the money, I'll say, okay, you can pay me the second half like 60 or 30 or 60 days after, but I haven't done that in a long time. Yeah, I think yeah. My, my experience has just been that actually chasing down big companies for money is usually not a problem. I've had some issues, but for the most part, my experience has been their billing department is fairly standardized and they're so used to just paying out on a regular basis that it sometimes takes a month or two for them to sort of get how it's going to work and for all of us to synchronize. Like now I know how Cisco needs their things. I know how HP needs their things. So it's not as good as getting the money in advance, but it's not too bad. It's not that different from just, you know, taking the hour, two hours each month and going through the invoices and maybe even less than that, probably less than that. But with smaller clients, I definitely like the idea of getting paid in advance because there it's small. They're going to forget. I'm going to have to chase them down. And that is really annoying. So I was really, really pleased when I got this client, this new client uh, about a month or so ago. And I said, well, and this is part of the deal also. I said, I'm willing to discount the rate a bit, but you've got to pay it 100% in advance. And they said, okay. And I nearly fell over in my chair, but <laughs> I wasn't going to complain. Yeah, what I like to do is I'll tell my clients, because this is the truth, is all my clients pay weekly. Like they all pay in advance, you know, either a portion or the full thing. And so if, if one client's balking and wants to pay like net 30 or whatever, I'll be like, look, we can set the contract up to do that, but I'm not locking in your time in the schedule until I get some kind of payment. So if you have your heart set on starting the 1st of March, then I have another client that actually pays me in advance and they want the 1st of March. They get the time you get bumped. The way I communicate to them is so that they understand that like until they pay me, they're probably going to get bumped and their project is just a filler project at that point because they're, you know, they are this oddball. Um, and I've 
think two people or two groups I've talked to about that. They decided like, yeah, let's let's do at least half up front just so we can get get it locked in on Eric's schedule so we can work with them. Yeah, I've had a good reaction when I say the locked in, you know, like locked into the calendar, locked into the schedule thing, because then they're like, oh, he's got to block out time. You know, he's got other things going on. And that usually, I guess what I'm trying to say is like occasionally when you do get pushback, it's not strong pushback. The hardest one I ever had was from a, a government organization that was like, no effing way are we paying you in advance. And I was like, all right. You can pay me. You can. I, this was one exception I made. I knew these guys were going to play real hardball, and I said, um, "I said, okay, well, that means I'm taking on a lot of risk. You guys could cancel or change at the last minute, and I'm doing a lot of preparations for this. But I'll take on that risk if you're willing to pay a premium." And they said, "Okay," so I quoted double the rate that they were going to pay me in advance, and, and it was still. Oh, and we had previously agreed that it was still fifty percent up front, which was the joke because I was like, <laughs> "Okay, you can pay me fifty percent up front and fifty percent after the fact, but I'm going to double the rate." And they were okay with that. No, they paid me the lower amount. In <laughs> oh, advance. that's a shame. But that was like I was like, "Okay," they said, "We only pay fifty percent in advance." I was like, "All right, then I'll just double my fee." <laughs> yeah, make the math that. work for you. I mean, <laughs> right. I recently, in, in, you know, in terms of similar, I guess, uh, red flags, um, I think one of you guys mentioned sort of companies being cheap earlier or saying, well, we don't have a budget. So I recently spoke to a company and I, I've done, I've done a few hours of work for them and I met with them and they're like, they're on the, the top floor of a skyscraper in Tel Aviv. They are selling systems to Wall Street traders. They, you know, they were showing off their fancy, fancy, fancy espresso machine. I asked them how important is this project they want me to help them with. They said, oh my God, our clients need it yesterday. I'm thinking to myself, ka-ching! <laughs> like, like, these guys are totally in the right place for that. So we had a fantastic meeting. I like helped them out with their databases. They called me to say, wow, you really made them run so much faster. This is fantastic. So what is your rate? And I called them my rate. They were like, oh, wow. We weren't expecting that. Wow. Well, how much of a discount would you give us if we hire you like every month for a day? I said, okay, nothing. <laughs> like, let's go for three days, four days. And so they said, well, no, no, no. Like that, that's just not going to work. We don't really have the budget for that. I'm thinking you have the budget for like, I'm, I'm, you know, maybe 10% of your rent per month. And then the, you know, basically the next day I get email from a friend of mine saying, so there's this place in Tel Aviv that's looking for someone who knows Postgres and Python. What's your rate for that? <laughs> Anyway, long story short, they called me last week and said, so can you come in? And fortunately, as one of you just mentioned, like having a calendar also helps. I said, well, go to my calendar and find some free time because I don't have a lot of it. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it was the whole scarcity thing then working in my favor as well. Um, it's still not going to be a lot of time. Like I was there for, I think, five hours total, two and a half the first time, two and a half the second. I don't think it'll turn into a long-term gig. But even the, the companies that are cheap at the end of the day, they do need to get business done. And if you just roll over and do whatever they want, that won't necessarily work to your advantage. And there are places that will come back to you because they realize that they need to help. Mm. On this topic, Alan Weiss would say that money is not a resource, it's a priority. There's money. Mm. You just need to have it prioritized to you. Like they probably spent more on coffee machines than they spent on you. You know, there's a story of like, you know, any large company, how much do they spend on toilet paper a day and what do you do with toilet paper? <laughs> <laughs> There's a joke in there somewhere, but I'm afraid to say it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, the joke is but, like I mean, an exercise to the listener. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's the thing. It's 
uh, and the same thing goes for time. Like if you complain about I don't have time to do X, Y, or Z, it's not really time or it's not really money. It's a priority. Like if doing something or getting this new project started was a priority for your business, you would find the time, you would find the money or you would find some way to make it work. Maybe you would do some kind of bartering thing. But, you know, if it came down to that, most people, you know, when they know they, they actually can't get access to it, they're a lot more open. They're a lot more willing to compromise and so you might get concessions on other parts of the contract or other parts of, you know, maybe we'll pay you every month for six months until we built up enough of a prepayment that we can get started on the seventh month or some oddball thing. But yeah, I think a lot of companies just like to push back and to see what they're able to get. And that's just standard negotiation. We should probably wrap up soon. So you guys have any more advice, stories, major red flags people should watch out for? I think we covered all the big ones. Yeah, I think one thing I, cause I kind of have something like this I talk about for like I, when you're doing like your ideal client profile. Uh, one thing is, is watch for things in a project that piss you off or cause any kind of strong emotional response one way or the other. Um, because that is, that's a good red flag or that's a good, you know, opposite of a red flag. If there's a client that delights you, why are they delighting you? Flip that around to the, to the opposite. And that's probably a red flag to watch for. Um, and just kind of, you know, have a list or some kind of like document to keep in mind of like, Here's all the red flags I have. Here's here's why I don't like it. Here's why I get in trouble with it. And kind of regularly update it and curate that list just because you're going to change the types of clients you work with is going to change. The projects are going to change. Um, I think I think that kind of process is more important than having like, you know, here's the top 10 red flags to watch out for. That makes a lot of sense. Should we do picks, guys? Sure. Jonathan, go for it. What are your picks for this week? I am reading an excellent book on pricing right now called Pricing with Confidence by Reed Holden. I would be actually shocked if it hadn't been a pick previously on the show, but it's a great book that synthesizes a bunch of really theoretical techniques from another book called The Strategy and Tactics of Pricing, which is really dense and kind of hard to, uh, I feel like it's kind of hard to apply. But this Pricing with Confidence book kind of synthesizes all of that into examples and and things that you can actually do that apply the principles and is just like chock full of great ideas uh it's definitely it's primarily geared toward like global multinational companies that sell stuff like you know filaments like ge selling i don't know car headlights to ford or you know it's like for a big huge company pricing but there are a bunch of examples that relate to software and even though they're at the SAP and Oracle level, they're still really, really applicable to even if you're running a SaaS or if you're even just dealing with different kinds of buyers and how to deal with buyers in a service business. It's like amazingly good. It's kind of long and there's some stuff that doesn't necessarily apply, but I would definitely put it on my must read list if you're thinking about different ways to price your services or how to deal with different kinds of buyers like like we were just talking about. There's price buyers, there's value buyers. And there's this poker player type buyer who's actually a value buyer but isn't afraid to try and negotiate because that's just their personality. And those are the ones that generally that's those are usually the ones that you can get to you can push through the pushback. So that's my pick. Excellent. Eric, any picks for this week? Yeah, so last week I was at MicroConf and Kai Davis has put together this, like, I, I have been joking from it's like almost a book of notes from all the talks. You can go to microconfrecap.com. Um, that'll actually redirect you to the page, but he has, he has notes on every talk, all the attendee talks, all that stuff. So if you, yeah, actually, even if you did get to go to MicroConf, it's probably a good idea to, you know, scan through this, get some stuff out of it. There was two sessions that 
basically all the information you could apply to a consulting business. But there's a lot of the other ones that were producty in a way, but they actually would also be work. They would also work for consulting stuff. So I'd recommend going through. There's a lot of stuff in there. I've my notes. I think I went through and I had about 47 to do items just from you know the two days of the conference, and then going through Kai's notes, I found another you know five or ten that I missed. So I I'd highly recommend that. And if you can, I would recommend going to it next year. It's probably going to be in Vegas again, you know, around March or April. So doesn't MicroConf sell out with like two hours of announcing it or something? Yeah, but it they have a rolling launch. So if you are in the MicroConf Academy or you went to a previous one or you're on the like early bird list, you can get access before the general public. Yeah, I don't know if it's, it sells out within hours or minutes. I think there's 220 people at this conference. So it's a very small conference and very high demand. So if you're interested, at the very least, get on that waiting list. I think just on microconf.com is the sign-up link for it. Right. I mean, I'm thinking one of these days I'd love to go to it, but it might be easier and certainly closer for me to go to the one in Europe. Yeah, the Europe one, from what I hear, is just as good. It gets a different, you know, a little bit different speakers, but it's still really, really high quality. You still get a lot of the good networking stuff. And especially if you're doing business in Europe, it's actually a good idea to go to that one because it's, it might be a bit more relevant than a U.S. centered one. Great. I've got one pick for this week as well. Uh, I've been using Clean My Mac for a few years now to keep track of and remove all sorts of junk from my disk. And they just upgraded this week to Clean My Mac 3. And I must say, overall, it's a very nice upgrade. Certainly good UI. Um, they've added all sorts of features to look not just at your disk, but they give you nice stats on your memory and battery and that sort of stuff. So not an overwhelmingly exciting pick, but uh, certainly one that helps me in my day-to-day life and make sure that my disk... I mean, one of the nice things is they tell you how much space you have freed over time. And I think over time, I've, like, you know, saved three times my actual disk size, which... Makes sense given how much I, you know, download and upload and create and so forth. Anyway, that's my pick for this week. So thanks everyone for listening, and we will see you next week. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit cachefly.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the Freelancer Show panelists and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. Sign up at freelancershow.com slash forum. 